If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is the eve of St. Patrick's Day, the festival of the Irish all around the world, the 17th of March. John has been giving up curly whirlies for Lent. You can have curly whirlies tomorrow now. Yeah, there was always a special day. I love that. If you're you're Irish, you'll know. dispensation. If you're Irish and you're listening, you'll know this. If you're not Irish, I'm going to give you this classic, classic Irishism. When we were kids, we had to give up. We had to give up something yeah. for Lent, right? Um, I tried to give up mass one year. You have to give up mass. You have to be even more holy than you were before. But there was a lovely special dispensation, which is on St. Patrick's Day, which usually came in the middle of Lent. You could eat as many curly wordies as you like. Yeah. And John and I would just pig out. It was like Christmas morning when we were kids. Sick as we'd, dogs. We'd sick as dogs. Said, Quality street, milk trays, curly wordies, Twixes, everything, Marathon Snickers, Snickers even Whatever before. Whatever was going. Even Marathons were Snickers before they were Snickers, weren't That's they? Right, yeah. Exactly. Also, potato crisps, the whole thing. And then you just puke. Yeah. At about five o'clock. <laughs> anyway, so that was our Patrick's Day, but it's lovely but you are listening to us on Patrick's Day. And we know that we have a brilliantly widespread uh, audience and uh, you are listening from all over the globe and lots and lots of you of Irish roots are Irish. So happy St. Patrick's Day to you all. We're Absolutely. obviously, you know, John and I are going to be, or maybe, I, do you know I tried to give up booze for Lent? <laughs> okay, don't bother, Mac. <laughs> I did. <laughs> How's that going for you? Well, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but it's quite okay, actually. But on St. Patrick's Day, we are going to do a piece from the country that our ancestors probably made the biggest impact on, which is the United States. Because when you go to the States, we try to explain it to people. We have this bizarre situation where we have an island here of well, seven million and a republic of five and a half million and yet 40-odd million Americans claim yeah. to be, claim when they're asked, where are you from? And they say, we're from Ireland, we're Irish-Americans, which is an extraordinary figure, and they've contributed enormous good and bad, but mainly good to the United States. In fact, 
I think when I'm when I'm in the States, I always get a feel, I don't know about you, John, but I get a feeling, particularly in the urban centers of the Northeast, which I know, your Boston's, New York's, mm. Philadelphia's, that you're kind of home. It's kind yeah, of there, like is, a home there home. is an element to that. I used to go over to my uncle in San Francisco quite a bit. And, you know, and I was home. He felt very much at home down Geary Street, even the names of the streets in all yeah. these places. No, it's, 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 so it's an amazing part of Irish culture, Irish history. It's also something that I believe is actually part of Ireland's global. We have many tricks as a nation. And I think one of those tricks is an ability to work globalization. I've always been intrigued by this, that certain nations, races, cultures are good at globalization. Mm. We've done very, very well. And I think it's when you are a tribe which has always traveled, mm. you're really at home everywhere. Yeah. And and nowhere, if you know what I mean. I mean, Absolutely. we feel very at home everywhere we go. And I think that's part of the fact that we've been doing it for years, that we've been leaving the country for you, years and years and years. You know, back in, uh, was it 92 or something, I did a drive on my own from San Francisco to New York. It took me 10 days. It was great. But when I was driving across Nevada, I stopped in a town called Winnemucca. 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 And, you that know... sounds very Irish. Well, this is the thing that... So the, the history of the town apparently was, you know, it was an old Indian word. And uh, and I've sent the story to, to this guy who's a Gael and he goes, Winnemucca on the pig's back. On the pig's back, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting you talk about... So this was Nevada, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the middle of Nevada, in like a real desert town. But was it a mining town by any chance? It could have been, actually. Because there are many, many places in the States that you don't expect to meet Irish populations. Like Butte, Montana has the highest percentage of Irish people of all American towns. No way, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a mining town. So it's the nice parts of the world as well. Yeah, well, you like all that sort of mountains and rivers and stuff. I'm, big sky. I'm much more. I'm much more. Just give me, give me a cafe and a small street and lots of people. But we are going to celebrate uh, St. Patrick's Day by talking to you from the states. We're going to talk to that great Irishman, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Hasn't got a drop in him, but is married to Jane O'Mara Sanders. Yes, he did. Who's one of our own? We're going to do a State of the Union because America is so close to us and so many areas. We have deep, deep contacts with the United States, not only the likes of Joe Biden being Irish-American, but just basically our countries are very intertwined. So let's go to the States, let's talk to Bernie, and let's get a State of the Union from Burlington in just up there beside Canada. Let's go talk to Bernie. Bernie, how are you doing? I'm good. How have you been? Well, I'm flying, Bernie. I'm in really good form. Things are good over here, you know, life goes on. We're just watching America from afar, Bernie, from the safe distance of between the oceans. <laughs> now, I know you've been just over in, in London recently and, and jetting around the place. So listen, thanks so much for your time. And certainly in Washington, and I'd love to go back up to Burlington at some stage. If the foundation is going to have another shindig, we should definitely do that as well. I know Jane would love to have you. Brilliant. Okay, well, Bernie, let's get started. I'm just going to ask you, state of the nation, the United States, where is it at now, internally, externally? What's your sense now of the U.S.? Well, David, one of the reasons I wrote this book is that I think we don't talk enough about the reality of life for ordinary people. Uh, and when you do that, you find that we have a middle class which continues to decline in America. We have over 60% of our people are living paycheck to paycheck. And what that means is at the end of the week after they work, they got nothing in the bank. And if their car breaks down or their kid gets sick, 
they're in difficult economic conditions. Meanwhile, while millions of people in this country are working for starvation wages, what we're seeing is more and more income and wealth inequality in America. Yeah. In fact, we have more income and wealth inequality than we've ever had. Uh, you got three people on top owning more wealth than the bottom half of American society. You got the CEOs of large corporations making 400 times what their workers make. So middle class struggling, millions living in poverty, people on top doing phenomenally well. That's the state of the economy. And that's the state of the union, in effect. Now, Bernie, what I want, what I want to come back, I want to come back and say, like, no, we don't have to do a huge history. It's almost a how do we get here. But I want to even go further back, further back, and ask you a little bit about where you're coming from, where you came from, what your America was when you were younger, how that's changed, how you've watched it change. Like, what, where was it in the early years? What was informing you? What was actually the, the influences early doors in, on your life and your worldview? And then how has that all changed over years? There were... Well, the changes, David, in, in a broad sense that have taken place is that right now there is almost uncontrollable greed on the top of the uh, on the part of the people on top. There's no great secret that you know the, the, the boss has always made more money than the workers. Yeah. We always had discrepancy between rich and poor. Nothing new about that. But what you're seeing now is uh, a, a level of greed which is uncontrollable. These guys want it all. $10 billion is not enough. They need 50 billion. They need 100 billion. They need to squeeze their workers more and more. That's the difference between what we've seen in the last few years, say, than when I was growing up. For example, when I was growing up, the gap between the CEO's salaries, compensation was maybe 30 to 1, 40 to 1. Now it is 400 to 1. So, you know, what this book is about and what I'm seeing is the extraordinarily extraordinary level of greed on the people on top who will do anything. They'll destroy the planet. They'll destroy workers. They want tax breaks for the rich. They don't care about what happens to ordinary Americans. That's kind of what I'm seeing going on. Well, listen, I'm just going to just talk to listeners for a second. The book is called It's Okay to Be Angry. Even the title of the book is unusual. It's it's okay to be angry about capitalism. It is a book that takes us through the, the beginning chapters or about the campaign, the 2020 campaign, the previous campaigns, which I want to talk to you about taking on Trump because I want to ask you if he's going to come back and if he does, what does that mean for the United States? Jesus. And John has just said, Jesus on the far side, my co-host in this endeavor. And then uh, we, we go into policy recommendations and what can be done, done about it. But even the title, you know, it's okay to be angry about capitalism. Where did you come up with that title? Because a lot of people in, in Ireland would say, okay, well, if capitalism is generating such levels of inequality, and it does generate extraordinary upside as well for people when we take it in the round, but you don't even have to apologize. It almost sounds as if you're apologizing for people's anger, Bernie, even in the title. Well, I, I want people in this country to see that there are alternative visions, and I want people to connect the dots. So it's not just income and wealth inequality. It's not just concentration of ownership. It's not just in this country that we're the only major nation on earth not to guarantee health care to all people. It's not just that we have a child care system, which is a disaster. It's not just that we pay the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs. It's not just that we're not leading the world in transforming our energy system with regard to climate change. 
It is all of those things, not just separate issues. It is tied into a system where the people on top are incredibly greedy and are prepared to do anything to get what they want. Now, Bernie, in most countries, we have a thing, as, as you know, called taxation. So if you get to a situation whereby, you know, I think it was one of, uh, I think it was Louis Brandeis said about the United States, about, he's saying about every country, he says, you can have inequality and you can have democracy, but you can't have both. Okay. Right. So he's basically making the point, and this is back in, 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 in the, you know, one of the, the great Rooseveltian characters. He was making the point that, yeah, you can have inequality if you want. And fair play if that's what you want, but you can't have it with democracy. And in a sense, that's what Europeans find hard to grasp in the United States, that American democracy itself has been infiltrated, itself has been corrupted. And so you have profound inequality and a democracy at the same time. Well, that's questionable. Okay, so <laughs> let's question it. What the book talks about, David, is income and wealth inequality. Yeah. It talks about more concentration of ownership than we have ever had. So in Sector after sector, whether it's agriculture, transportation, financial services, fewer and fewer large corporations control what people buy. And then on top of that, to get to your point, in America, maybe uniquely, we now have the best democracy that money can buy. (laughs) Well put. Uh, And that means that as a result of a terrible Supreme Court decision, billionaires can literally spend as much money as they want through what is called a super political action committee to elect the candidates they like or defeat the candidates they don't like. So you can call it what you want, but tell me what kind of democracy it is when billionaires can spend unlimited amounts of money. It's a plutocracy. And I remember watching your campaign and Mike Bloomberg coming in to this point, exactly to this point and spending, you know, shed loads of money all the time for no return. But the fact is the the, the pitch was was totally and utterly skewed financially. And I think a lot of Europeans are like, how does that happen? How can, how can that be consistent with? And you're saying it actually stems from a Supreme Court piece of legislation. Well, we've always had a bad situation, but the Supreme Court, I think in 2010, basically said that if you are a billionaire, You are entitled to freedom of speech, and that freedom of speech means that you can put as many ads as you want on television. You can express your freedom by buying elections. So you, you have now the conflict between freedom for a billionaire plus the maintenance of democracy. That is the clash. I come down on the side of maintaining democracy. Now, Bernie, interestingly, you came down at one side on the clash. You galvanized many millions of Americans. You galvanized a huge mass movement. So what I'm saying is the urge for change is there. Yes, it is. So let's talk about this movement. and Let's see where it is, where it's going, where you feel it can go. Well, I want people to hear some very good news. And that is as a result of this strong grassroots movement, which was composed mostly of young people and working class people. We have elected over the last six years more strong progressives to the United States House of Representatives, our Congress, than ever before, certainly in my lifetime, probably ever. So you have really wonderful people, often young people of color, 
who virtually all come from working class backgrounds, who are now in the House fighting for economic justice and social justice and racial justice and environmental justice. What we have also showed is that on issue after issue, the majority of the American people do not want what we call incremental change. They want transformational change. They think healthcare is a human right. They think education is a human right. They think income and wealth inequality is out of control. So that's kind of what our campaign showed. We have brought millions of people together fighting for real change in this country. And at the end of the campaign, Bernie, you made a pact with Joe Biden. You know, you you, you sat down and it, again, it was, it was a, I think it was quite a positive sign that you came together and you said, okay, look, you're going to be made immeasurably stronger by doing a deal with me. And then my agenda, my progressive agenda is going to be given a much better chance by doing a deal with you. Where Where's that deal now? How, how do you feel about that deal now? Well, I think in the context of American politics, uh, David, what Biden did was quite unusual. He was smart enough to see that we had far more support among young people than he had and a lot of support among working class people. And at the end of the campaign, what he and I chatted about was the need to bring together a series of task forces with the best people that he had, the best people that we had, to sit down and say, where do we go forward on climate change? Where do we go forward on the economy, on healthcare and education, on all of the important issues? We sat down and we discussed and we worked out agreements. What that became transferred to is in March of 21, just a few months after Biden took office, we passed a piece of legislation called the American Rescue Plan. At $1.9 trillion, it was the largest single piece of legislation passed in a very, very long time. And it went a long, long way to help working class people uh, deal with the terrible pandemic and the economic collapse we were facing at that moment. And that was collaborative work between you know Biden's people and our people yep. and the Congress and the Senate. But it was a, a major, major piece of legislation based on the principles that we had hammered out. Second of all, we worked on a bill called Build Back Better, which dealt not with the emergency of the pandemic, but of the structural crises facing this country. We lost that by two corporate Democrats who refused to support it in the Senate, but it was a transformative piece of legislation. So to answer your question, Biden in fact kept his word and said that he was prepared to go big, prepared to go transformative. We had some progress, not enough. And can I ask you then about, because when I listen to Joe Biden and when I listen to yourself, I, I'm seeing two two men coming from the same side of the tent in general, in general. And then I see the Republican Party and I see a totally different creature. And you've discussed it in the book, but I want to tease it out with you here. Why do you think working class Americans vote for someone like Donald Trump who celebrates everything that actually will imperil their existence, everything that will make this gap between rich and poor wider, and everything that will actually keep these people down? Well, David, I don't know that it's fundamentally different than a phenomenon we're seeing in parts of Europe as well, where 
working class people, often in rural areas, are looking around them and they don't see government responding to their needs. So literally in the United States, there are large parts of our country, often in rural America, where life expectancy, this is above and beyond COVID, life expectancy is declining. People are earning terrible wages, they can't afford healthcare, their kids can't go to college. And in fact, what they are seeing is their kids will have a lower standard of living than they do. So they are looking around them and they don't see democracy working for them. They don't see government working for them. And then you have a strong man, a demagogue coming along and said, you know what the problem is? The problem is immigrants. The problem is gay people. The problem is black people. The problem is Muslim people and so forth and so on. That's, you know, the historic role that demagogues have always played. And uh, that's what Trump is about. Uh, so that is one of, you know, that's, that is, I think, a major reason why Trump has done so well with working class people. And it's interesting you, you talk about that because I think actually the last time you were over in Ireland when we when we chatted at the at the Dorky Book Festival we were talking about the the nativist movement the Know Nothings and they had come out in the eighteen fifties an anti Irish movement in in effect a nativist movement and so the the roots of this movement are, are deep in the United States and you go through the yes, popular you know populist movements of eighteen nineties and the anti Roosevelt stuff you know these are this is this is a deep part of the American political firmament. Yes, it, it is. It's anti-immigrant. It's anti-Asian. You're right, anti-Irish. Uh, yeah, we've had it all. And what we are, you ask about our political movement, it is trying to do in many ways exactly the opposite of what Trump is doing. He is trying to split people up, come up with scapegoats to blame all the problems on. Mm -hmm. What we are trying to do is bring people together, whether they're black or white or Latino, Asian-American, a gay or straight, around a progressive agenda, which, by the way, is enormously popular, enormously popular. All the issues we talk about have strong majority support. And, and yet, you know, what, what, what amazes me when we're looking at the variety of campaigns over the last while, but particularly your grassroots campaign, was the fear it instilled in the mainstream, dare I say, center-left, I can understand that, you know, you're going head to head against someone like Trump and it's it's a gloves off situation. But but how do we explain, you know, like the New York Times, these type of publications and their attitude to a grassroots leftist, you know, not not a particularly radical movement by any sense of means, but a, a, a grassroots movement? Well, I think it has a lot to do with uh, the establishment uh, primarily interested in maintaining their own class privileges. So for them, what politics is about is they believe that African-Americans, Blacks, and Latinos should have equal opportunity. They certainly believe that women should not be second-class citizens, and, and they're very strong in fighting sexism. They believe in gay rights. But when it comes to class issues, uh, the rights of working-class people to have power over their jobs, the need to raise taxes on the rich, the needs to have a national health care system, the need to take on corporate interests, well, that's when you have some problems because a lot of these folks are not unsympathetic to what's going on in corporate America. Bernie, it's funny you mentioned the word class there. This is something that I've always noticed in the States. You can talk about any issue, but not class in America. Why is that? Well, you got it, David. 
that's the whole thing. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing thing. Like for a European, I'm over in New York when I was up in Burlington, where I am, Europeans talk about class all the time, right? It is. No, it, we don't talk about it. We're not allowed to talk yeah. about it. it, it is, <laughs> Let's explain it, explain could, that to me. Because that, 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 that's... David, a, you could talk about, you could talk about pornography <clears throat> before you'll talk about class. <laughs> yeah. And that is Jesus. how the system protects itself. So you could watch American television 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The phrase working class will never be mentioned. And you can watch television for 50 years and the term ruling class will never, ever come up. So when you got three people owning more wealth in the bottom half of America, when you got a handful of corporations on Wall Street having unbelievably economic power, Despite all of that, there is no such thing as a working class. We're not even allowed to conceptualize that. And that's what this book is about. It's saying, hey, guess what? There is a working class, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, we all look. I know in, in Ireland and America, we, we take football seriously and, and so forth. There are winners and losers. Well, guess what? The ruling class in this country is winning. The working class is losing. Let's understand why. Let's understand what we must do to go forward to provide a decent life for all. No, it's it's an amazing thing. I've always, just on that issue, I've always thought, you know, you hear this expression, the common man in America. This is the catch-all, you know, the hardworking American, the blue-collar American even, but you don't hear the working-class American, you know, or else what you hear you is... Don't. You hear the middle class, and that stretches like that's, that's a right. multitude of sins are covered by that one. But you don't. But know. David, the point there, I mean, you're raising a very, very important point, which we deal with in the book, is the ruling class of this country does not, and their media, they own the media, does not want us to even conceptualize the idea that there is a class warfare going on. We're not allowed to even think about it because if we think about it, well, maybe we'll decide to do something about it. So it, that is very important point. Well, let's talk about the, the do something about it. Because again, we come back, your campaign exposed the fact that many tens of millions of Americans, nay, hundreds of millions of Americans, want change. They want change that is not, as you say, gradualist over, well, don't worry your kids and your grandkids are saying, well, hold on a second, I want change now. I'm not sure there's a huge constituency for radical, radical change, but there's a there's this huge constituency for going in the right direction quickly. You know, it's, the, it's yes. what Martin Luther King talked about, the extreme urgency of now. Yes. How do you affect that? Well, I tell you, I, I think what we do is we fight for issues that have widespread support, which embody the need to bring people together to take on the ruling class. Let me give you just a few examples. And again, the situation in America is different than it is in Europe or in Ireland. Right now, we have in America a tax system in which billionaires pay an effective, i.e. real tax rate, lower than a nurse or a truck driver. The vast majority of Americans, whether they're Democrat, Republican, or whatever, believe that's absurd. So we have to bring forward what is called a progressive tax system. In America today, unlike Ireland, unlike the UK, we are the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people. We spend twice as much per capita on health care as you do, and yet a third of our people are uninsured or underinsured. We have 60,000 people who die every year because they don't get to a doctor on time. 
We're going to continue the fight, not a radical idea that healthcare is a human right, all people are entitled to it. And the goal of healthcare is not just to make insurance companies rich, but guarantee healthcare to all people. I'm the chairman of the committee that has responsibility for minimum wage. I'm going to do my best to raise the minimum wage in this country to a living wage, which in my view at this moment is about $17 an hour. I want to make sure, and again, these are not radical ideas. No, they're, they're, not, rad they're not radical ideas. And I remember when, when we were chatting in Burlington, you were making the point to me that Burlington is like, I think about 40 miles from the, from the Quebec border in Canada. And you were talking about basic medicines over the border in Canada costing a fraction of what they were costing. Yes. Same medicine, same company, same brand. You got it. And, you know, and I'm work that's exactly what I'm working on as chairman uh, of the committee. Higher education. Who doesn't understand that in this day and age, 2023, our young people need more education than was the case 50 years ago? So many of our young people in the United States can't afford a higher education, much too expensive. And I want to make public colleges and universities uh, tuition free. And I'll tell you, we have an existential threat, which all of us have got to work on. And young people are very worried about it, and that is climate change. And if we do not transform our energy system away from fossil fuel to sustainable energy, energy efficiency, I don't know what kind of planet we're leaving future generations. So those are some of the issues that bring people together and say to the ruling class, the big money interest, sorry, you can't have it all, we're taking you on. And I'll tell you something else, David. Artificial intelligence and robotics are gonna have a profound impact on the workforce, in Ireland, in Europe, in the United States. And we better get a handle on who benefits from that change. Is it just going to be the people who own the technology or is it going to be working class people? I mean, what you're talking about, Bernie, are huge, huge issues. And yet, if you look back in history of the United States, a man like Roosevelt comes in at the end of the 1920s. The 1920s is the most aggressively unequal period in the United States in terms of rich and poor, the Gilded Generation, the Great Gatsby. We can, we can we talk about it all. You know, it's, it's popular culture. And Roosevelt came in and he said, okay, we're going to change all that. We're going to come off the gold standard. We're going to take the banks over. We're going to, you know, it has all been done. It has been done in the past. And, it, and that was a reset of the United States. And arguably that reset set Americans up for, for 50 years thereafter. Roosevelt's strength was his willingness to say in so many words, I am prepared to take on the ruling class of this country. And if they hate me, so be it. I'll stand with working class people. He was elected president four times. Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary. And he said, I think he, he said, he said, they hate me and I welcome their hate, I think was the quote. You got it. That's it. We put that in the book. And we don't have enough politicians now because of our campaign finance system to say, if corporate America hates me, that's fine. I appreciate that. That's great. We don't, because I have to go to them to raise money every other week. That's an essential problem that we face. Now, Bernie, I want to come back to America in two secs, because I, I just want to ask you about the international world, the United States, Ukraine, Russia, China. When we spoke, the last time you and I sat down, we chatted, it was a totally different place. Yes. What's your sense of that now? And what should America do? My sense is I, I am very worried, to be honest with you, David. I was outraged by Putin's invasion of the Ukraine 
it was absolutely unnecessary. A resolution could have been worked out if Putin had legitimate concerns about NATO encroachment. That I know could have been worked out. And what's happened with that war is not only the terrible destruction in Ukraine and the loss of tens of thousands of young Russians in the war, but the rupturing of the ability of the world to come together to try to deal with issues like climate change and the pandemic. And in America, I am also worried about the growing Cold War with China. So those concern me very much. And, and in terms of, of Ukraine, because Ukraine is the one that most Europeans worry about because it's right on our border. And you also wrote in your book that your ancestors come from Poland, you know that part of the world, etc. It's right beside us. Where do you think this goes? I mean, have you, have you any sense when you talk to people in Washington of, of where the United States, where is there a red line? Is there an issue with Putin? Does it support Ukraine militarily to the, to the end? What's the game plan? I, I don't think anyone is talking about American troops on the ground in, in, in the Ukraine. That's not going to happen. Uh, but I think it is perceived in this country that it is, and I think most of Europe, that it is absolutely imperative to tell Putin that he simply cannot send troops to invade uh, independent democratic countries. Absolutely. And, and with China, you say you're increasingly worried or even possibly on a, on a, you know, more concerned about what's coming down the track with China. I, you know, there was a moment, well, more than a moment, you know, after the end of the Soviet Union, where there was a hope that maybe finally leading countries like the United States, China and Russia uh, would be able to work together, have sensible maybe trade policies, uh, deal with issues like the pandemic. But right now, I sense in the United States, and, and I say this as someone concerned about, very concerned about human rights issues in China, their attitude to Taiwan, etc. But I don't know, David, how you're going to deal with climate change if the United States China, Russia, and other countries are not at the table talking about how we transform our global energy system. So that growing hostility, the Cold War with China, the hot war in the Ukraine is extraordinarily troubling. And we've got to figure out somehow or another how we bring the world back together again. I come back to Roosevelt and I come back to those, I dare I say, the, the greats, you know, who had this globalist view, you know, the Bretton Woods, the, the United Nations, World Health Organization, all these these things that were put together after the Second World War. We need that type of maybe generation of American thinkers, kind of globalist thinkers. You know, we do. I mean, after World War, the horrors of World War One, after the incredible horrors of World War Two, people said we can't continue to do this anymore. I mean, you know, the horrors are unspeakable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we need to have, right now, I worry, you know, I'm not the only one, scientists will tell you, if you think COVID is the last pandemic to threaten the world, you're wrong. How do we deal with that? How do we develop the vaccines? How do we deal with the preventative measures? Because a, a, a pandemic is not just a Chinese issue or an American issue or an Irish issue. It's a global issue. You're going to have to deal with it globally. Right. Uh, and, the same, and the same thing, of course, with climate change. So if there's ever a moment when we have to bring the world together, this is that moment. 
Bernard, it's St. Patrick's Day is tomorrow, okay? You're married to Jane, who when we did the DNA test was 96% Irish, which is even more <laughs> Irish. That's more Irish than all of us listening, okay? And the Irish have been very much part of the American story. But that has also, you know, been the story of migration. It's been the story of the consistent immigration of people changing the face, bringing their energy, bringing their ideas, bringing their, bringing their good bits and their bad bits, Bernie, and their bad bits. But the Irish have been part of that story. To what extent is that the fear in America is that that door closes on those people who want to come and reinvent themselves? Well, I, I think, David, I mean, it's no great secret that in sections of the Republican Party, there is a growing xenophobia and the confusion between illegal immigration and legal immigration. There is a growth in this country of what is called white nationalism, which is just plain old-fashioned racism against anybody who's a different color. My father came to this country from Poland. Uh, Jane's grandparents came from Ireland. And, you know, I think we can argue that one of the great strengths of the United States is, is we have be, been a melting pot where people from all over the world have, have come. And we certainly don't want to close that door, certainly. Bernie, we will leave it there. It was an absolute pleasure. The book is called It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism by Bernie Sanders. Uh, wonderful stuff. I, I'm just going to just remember we were talking about DNA tests. Remember you told me you got a DNA test and you're actually related to Larry David. That's right. <laughs> That's so funny. That was, and he's, and he's been playing you on TV for years. Uh, that was, I, I learned about that on a television show where they did this DNA research. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Listen, Bernie, take care. We'll talk again. Thank you so much for that. Hopefully see you soon. And love to Jane. And hopefully we'll see you in the States, maybe Washington or maybe even Burlington. Look, my, she wants to come to Ireland tomorrow. I'm trying to, <laughs> she loves Ireland and I do too. So uh, we'll see you either, either place. But great David, stuff. keep up the great work. Great stuff, Bernie. We'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Bye. Thanks, Bernie. Bye-bye. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Bernie was certainly on front. What age is Bernie now? Oh, he must be, he must be 80, is he? But he's sound, he's sounding good. He he's, still has the fire in his belly. He's, doesn't uh, he? he's great. He's he's the best company. You know, I went up there. I think I I told you I went I went up there a couple of years ago. His wife Jane has a an organization called the Sanders Institute. Right. And they asked me to go up and give a give a talk, give a chat. They were you know about Europe and and what Europeans thought. But it was really extraordinary to be there with in their family home. And you know you're you're in a part of the states, you know. Vermont, which is really quite remote. Yeah. And yet what you have is this firebrand, Brooklyn-based, sort of almost evangelical preacher. Yeah. And, and what is extraordinary about Bernie is is the way in which he created a grassroots movement. Yeah. Kind of out of nowhere. But he kind of sensed, and you get this, the important thing, he sensed that the inequality and the problem in America was something that everybody felt and wasn't being spoken to or addressed by either Republicans or Democrats. And this, you know, tens of millions of Americans voted for Bernie in all sorts of primaries. Yeah. And that movement he is still the leader of. And that movement is big and it's growing. And amongst millennials and Gen Zs, it's the majority view. But what's interesting, though, is remember but when we were younger in the 80s and 90s, America was the place to go. Yeah. We all wanted, we all looked up to America. We all want to be little Americans. Yeah. And everyone went over on the J-1 visas and all that kind of stuff. Some of them never came back. But... I think America's changed oh, yeah. utterly now. The brand and, of America's changed. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what, what Bernie was going on about. And when he was talking there about, you know, billionaires buying election through corporate money and also what, what struck me was, you know, as they say that the sign of a civilised society is, you know, how a society looks after it's vulnerable and it's sick yeah. and, you know, it's homeless and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, when you look at America, you kind of wonder, well, how civilized is America now? Given it's, it's the, really the uncivilized, yeah. it's really uncivilized. But yet, yet I come back to that. Now, maybe I am, I've got a, a weakness for the United States, but I think that this pendulum. Remember, we, we spoke there when Bernie and I were chatting just there about Roosevelt and the, the what they call the greatest generation of Americans. Mm. And the pendulum swung through Reagan and Thatcher, away from all that. But I think now it's reached the extreme. All great or big ideologies have within them the seeds of their own destruction, right? If you look at that yeah. over through history. Yeah, yeah. And the ideology of, you know, free market, smash and grab, winner takes all, big guy gets everything, that's run its course. And I think what you're seeing, that movement that Bernie spearheaded, the fact that Biden, again, is much more sympathetic to the working man, to the average guy, mm. than the Republicans are. I believe it will swing back. But I do think you will have a populist movement in the States, but a populist left movement. Right. Like like, like, like the williams Jennings Bryan movement of the 1896 election. Let us go. We'll listen everybody. Happy St. Patrick's Day. And uh, hope you have a good time wherever you are. Be mellow. Toga boge. And we'll talk to you. Air on Lewin. Let's go for a pint. <laughs> Before we go, John, Lucy has a new track just released. It's called, I really love it. It's yeah. called Slow Dancing with Strangers in Bars. 
Yes. It's coming ahead of our yeah. first live gig, which is in the Workman's Club next Thursday evening. So just let's have a listen to this one. Slow dancing with strangers in bars. Something you've done many times, John. <laughs> to no avail. <laughs> he walks up politely asking, how do I do? He's so fucking authentic with that slick pack bro cream hairdo. And I don't like him, but I let him buy me wine. I bet he does this all the time. I've been slow dancing with strangers in bars. Somebody holds me like which time hurts sweetheart. Slow dancing.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.